hopefully over the, over the last few classes, we've learned um, and come to know about this little family in the house of Bethany as we've explored the, the wonderful characters of, of Mary and, and of Martha. And hopefully we've, we've come to appreciate them perhaps a little more than what we might have appreciated them before as we've explored the highs and, and lows of these characters, or well, particularly that of Martha. And we, we, when we stopped to consider Martha, we saw a sister who sacrificed to soothe and whose strong conviction in the Lord under pressure never wavered, but who herself had lessons to learn as she came to working with her sister as her sister wasn't always going to prioritise exactly the same things as she she would. But we saw, didn't we, that through her strong character, she was able to learn and believe and trust in her Lord in her greatest hour of need. And even all of that, when she didn't fully appreciate or wasn't fully aware of the purpose of God and how her Lord was outworking that when her sister under the same child struggled immensely. We watched as Mary, internalizing her challenges, was unable to process and rationalize why the Lord hadn't come. Remember, we, we saw that they asked exactly the same question. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. And yet they asked it in two entirely different ways. One, Martha asks it knowing that the Lord would have a purpose but didn't comprehend it. So it was asking to understand what his will was whilst the other was using it accusationary towards the Lord as a reason for why she was so upset. Lord, if you'd not been here, my brother had died. If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And her emotions rising above all reason and utter grief at the apparent unfairness of her Lord's delay and his apparent lack of care response. Did he not care? Did he not love them? And we saw... And Mary's emotional tendencies and her innermost feelings were going to blind her ability to understand and to comprehend that her Lord did have a purpose. If she'd only just stopped to ask why, as her sister had done. But before we judge Mary too harshly, brothers and sisters, we must understand that as with all weaknesses, they're often our greatest strengths. And often our greatest strengths are always, or quite often, our greatest weaknesses. And you know, brothers and sisters, this was certainly the case for both Martha and Mary. You see, Martha's willingness to sacrifice and to soothe meant that she could give and give for her Lord. But if that service mindset meant that she judged others who didn't have a similar disposition, then it would become a great hindrance to her. If I can't hear my own voice, that would be really good. Going back by Zoom. But with Mary, it also is no different, is it? Mary's innermost emotional self felt things so deeply and so emotionally that it meant that when, as it was with Lazarus's death, she felt emotionally undone and so overcome with grief, she was unable to process and to function. But this internal emotion and this intellectualized understanding of her innermost feelings is going to help her be able to think incredibly deeply as she reflects on what her Lord had taught her. It's going to be this emotional deepness of thinking 
It's going to enable Mary to see something that no other disciple of the Lord had seen or could comprehend. Mary, brothers and sisters, is going to be the only disciple of the Lord to appreciate and understand that her Lord would die and would be raised before his death. Just think about that, brothers and sisters and young people. She's the only disciple of all of the Lord's disciples to appreciate and understand that her Lord would die and would be raised before his death. No other disciple was going to understand that. And what we're going to see in the story, brothers and sisters, is that Mary comes, as we've read in Mark 14, to anoint her Lord for his burial because she understood that he was to die. And she understood that that what his doctrine and his teachings were all about and that he would rise again. But she understood that, brothers and sisters, because she thought so deeply and so emotionally on every word that the Lord had taught her. And so to see that, brothers and sisters, let's pick up the story now in John chapter 12 and verse 1. I just want to set the scene now using John's gospel to help appreciate how John writes the story. So I think that helps us as we unlock this, the circumstances that led to her anointing his head and his feet. So we pick up the story in John chapter 12 and verse 1, and it says this in John 12 verse 1, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but chapter 11 runs straight into chapter 12. So, so Jesus comes and, and into the Bethany, and it says where Lazarus was. was well, if we didn't know that, brothers and sisters, because we've just finished studying chapter 11 in the story of Lazarus and his resurrection. So why all the detail? Where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Why all the detail? Surely the context in John's gospel would help us understand. It was pretty obvious, wasn't it, to all those in Bethany that it was Lazarus who was raised from the dead. So why all the detail? Well, I want to show you how John 12 links to John 11, and have John 11 links to John 12, all right? So to see this, I want you to hold your hand, I want you to come back, and I want you to show, I want to show how John links these two stories inextricably together in his writing. So come back now to John 11, verse 2. Look what he says. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And then in parenthesis, he says in verse 2, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with a year, whose brother Lazarus is sick. Now that's a forward concept of a, a, um, a, a future event that John's wanting to link us to in John chapter 11. So in John chapter 11, he says, I want you to know that the Mary we're discussing is going to be the one that anoints his feet. And so he, John in his writings links us to John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, he links us back to John chapter 11. This is the Lazarus that was raised. So why might he be trying to link this, these two stories together? And I think the answer is 
that actually what we see in John chapter 12 is the effect of her understanding from what came out of John chapter 11. I think that's really helpful to understand that the cause of John 11 is going to be the effect of John 12. The incident of John 11 is going to have such a profound effect upon this family that this incident changed their lives for good, brothers and sisters. Because now, truly, wholeheartedly, and practically, they were going to believe in Christ as the Son of God, whose love would save them as the resurrection and the life. And look at what this belief and trust had engendered in these wonderful disciples, only days before his crucifixion in the house of his friends. Look what happens now in John chapter 12 as they're gathered together. Well, have a look at this. What do we see in the story of John chapter 12? Well, we see in verse 2, it says, there, and here is a key, key expression now with hopefully that's a little bit more pregnant with meaning, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Because it says here, they made him a son. Oh, they all participate in the preparation of this meal. This is not the Luke chapter 10 problem again, brothers and sisters, is it? No, it's not. Luke chapter 10, it was Martha only that was coming about and serving. Here, the entire family is there in the preparations of the Passover. They all make him a supper. And the, and the there, when it says they made him a supper, it's in the plural tense. They all helped out. See, Mary had learned, brothers and sisters, to assist Lazarus in his gratitude for what Christ has done. And Mary, gladly in a pure heart, could give. And what's more, supper being made, they subsequently fulfill all of their natural wrongs. You see, this was what this family learned from their engagement with the Lord. You see, Martha, we find, well, she serves, but there's no comment on her issues associated with her sister. Lazarus, well, he's at the table with the Lord, and we find Mary, no surprise, at the feet of her master, whom she loved. And we have this beautiful picture, don't we, brothers and sisters, of this wonderful family who had learned from their encounters with the Lord that in their gratitude they return his love to them. But whilst Martha's service is wonderfully and generously given, brothers and sisters, John wants to highlight the act of one woman in particular, and the act of Mary in her active service is going to be the thing that takes John with such amazing insight that she demonstrates as she takes a precious ointment and her Lord anoints her Lord. John wants us to see just how much Mary has grown and learned from John chapter 11. You see, whilst Mary had been consumed by her innermost feelings of personal loss, while she had become overcome by her own emotions, she now realizes and wants to demonstrate to her Lord just what losing him might mean to her and what his sacrifice would demonstrate for her. In just the same level of emotional intensity, but this time, brothers and sisters, channeled, well, correctly, 
as she thinks about her Lord's sacrifice. Mary learned from a challenge, brothers and sisters, and now the heart bursting with the full assurance of faith, to quote the epistles. She went about to show him just what his sacrifice would mean. And by the way, that's why I think John wants us to see the connections that exist now between John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. And look how much she's grown. Her transition, brothers and sisters, is remarkable when we stop and think about it. You see, Mary's response on this occasion was, well, it was multifaceted. You see, the first thing we know, and we briefly touched on this in, in our conversations last week with, with verse 45 of John 11, it would appear almost as if Mary had some level of input into helping the Jews that had come to see and to support Mary, particularly in her grief. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. And in my mind, there's no doubt, brothers and sisters, that Mary would have been the one instrumental in trying to help them understand that perhaps, perhaps she supports the GP efforts, sharing the news of Lazarus's resurrection, both with them and with the township. Because what we find in John chapter 12, well, many people now come in the story, verse 9, many of the Jews, therefore, knew that he was there. And they came not only for Jesus' sake, this is John chapter 12, verse 9, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. So somehow, some way, this proclamation of the wonderful news of Lazarus's resurrection had occurred. I mean, it naturally would occur, wouldn't it? But perhaps Mary had some input into that. But what else had she learned, brothers and sisters? Well, she had learned to assist her sister in preparing the supper. She'd showed her learnings and her love for her sister as she herself sacrifices to assist the preparation from Luke chapter 10. But now, more importantly, brothers and sisters, she comes to anoint the Lord's body for burial to show him what his sacrifice would mean to her. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, is how had this change taken place in Mary? How had she learned so rapidly from John chapter 11? Well, I believe, brothers and sisters, because of who she was, she sat down and she thought deeply on what had happened and the responses that she had made, the responses that Christ had shown, the message that he'd given her and her sister, and pieced it all together to show her gratitude for what he had done. Do you know, it's remarkable, isn't it, when we actually think about it, just what Mary learned. You see, those like Mary are able to feel the emotion and to think about what has happened to them because they're thinking about themselves internally. This is the strength of an emotional meal. You see, they feel things with such emotional intensity, they are often the ones to bounce back rapidly from trial with an intensity like no other as they seek to return with heartfelt gratitude, the love and care that they themselves perceive to be blessed with whilst they're on their knees in catastrophe, 
They're in the heights of spiritual wonder as they realize what they've been given. This is the Mary that we've come to appreciate, brothers and sisters. Mary's gratitude to her Lord at the resurrection of her brother, the understanding and hindsight now of what the Lord was trying to do in his purpose and his plan, and now her absolute conviction in him as her Messiah, the Son of God, drives her now to show her appreciation for what he had done and was about to do for her. This is the strength of an emotional, passionate Mary. And brothers and sisters, it's, it's often the way, isn't it, that God works closely with many emotional and devotional types, doesn't he? When they're up, they're up. When they're down, they're down. And we read of in the scripture many of his servants who rode that emotional roller coaster as God worked through them to bring about his purpose. When they're down, they're on the floor. When they're up, they're absolutely unstoppable. You think of people like Jacob, brothers and sisters, Moses, Elijah, Samson, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle. You see, when channeled in the right direction and dedicated in God's service, they were unstoppable as servants for him. Their greatest witness in their emotional trials became their greatest strength as God moved them to work in his, in his service. We definitely need more Marys, don't we, brothers and sisters, in our ecclesia to drive us along. And so she responds in such love. And I want to now pick up the story because I think we've given a bit more detail of the full thing in Mark chapter 14. Let's now have a look in Mark 14 and pick up now for the rest of tonight the story of what happens. So Mark gives us a little bit more detail as to when this whole thing took place. He says in Mark 14 verse 1, after two days was the feast of Passover. John 12 says six days, Mark 14 says two days. How do we reconcile that? Well, it's obviously the same event in John chapter 12, but perhaps John arrives, um, Jesus arrives early. They've had a few days together and the special supper that Jesus has made in Mark chapter 14, and is actually not the full six days that's referred to, but the actual two days when the supper actually takes place. That's the way I see and reconcile it a bit. Nevertheless, we can talk about that later. The most important thing that Mark tells us, though, and the reason why he gives us the specific two days before the Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread is he wants us to link the incident of Mark chapter 14 to, well, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why is Mark interested in linking these two stories together in the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? And by the way, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Feast of the Passover, whilst it was on the 14th of April, the lamb was locked up four days before on the 10th. So perhaps that helps us reconcile the six days before. Anyway, here is Christ pinned up in Bethany about to have a feast. And he's two days before the Passover, which means what, brothers and sisters? That means it's the night before his own supper in the upper room. Okay? We're all happy with that? That the feast that is given in Mark chapter 14 is the day before the feast in the upper room that he has with his disciples, which is before he's been killed as the Passover. 
So why the detail on the fact that we've got two feasts here? What, what were these two feasts all about? Well, we haven't got time to go there tonight, but Exodus chapter 12, verse 18 and 19 tells us that the festival of the unleavened bread was for seven days, which began with the Passover on the 14th and ended with the 21st, month of April. And during that whole time, the Passover was to be killed, and then subsequently they were to not eat any leaven in their household. The Passover kicked off the whole holy convocation on the first day and ended on the seventh day as another holy convocation. And the detail of the seven days is really specific in Exodus chapter 12, when he says, seven days shall ye eat, um, shall ye eat um, unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth unleavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul, says Exodus 12 verse 15, will be cut off from Israel. It was an incredibly stern command by God and one that was to be obeyed with incredibly stiff consequences if they didn't follow it. Just remarkable because the Jews, the Jews really went to town on this, in this, in this requirement. Maybe you can read that, maybe you can't. Regardless, I'll read it out to you. So this is a, an excerpt of what the Jews did in, from the book, The Offerings, Feasts, and Sanctuary, or Effie Mitchell, it's page 36. Anyway, he says this in Jewish, with respect to the Jewish tradition. He says the Jews took very seriously the command to rid themselves of leaven. Complete separation from leaven was enjoined. Complete separation there shall be. Everything was thoroughly cleaned. The ceilings and the walls were washed. The floors and the cupboards were scrubbed. The corners of every room were scoured. And every piece of furniture in the house was cleaned. Hey, spring cleaning could have taken to a real degree, right? All cooking utensils were bottled in water and then put away, uh, sorry, were boiled in water and then put away. <coughs> Interesting if they're bottled, wouldn't it? While special utensils and ovens were then brought out of the cupboard and brought into use. They, those special utensils and ovens were things that had not been contaminated by the leaven in the course of the year. You know, sound just to you? Remarkably so. So he says, so thoroughly was this work done that the woman would have a pointed implement with which she would scrape through every crack, every joint, or every impression or corner with any spot where during the leaven a crumb of bread containing leaven might have settled. Pretty intense, wasn't it? The laws, the, sorry, the law was that no living should remain anywhere within their dwellings. The law, he says, was carried out to the letter. You know, it's remarkable, isn't it, brothers and sisters, we're going to find never in this feast. We're going to find living all over this feast. But what was the feasts all about in type, brothers and sisters? Well, perhaps this might help. The two feasts stood for the salvation that God would complete in Christ and our subsequent obligation as a result of his salvation. Fitting, isn't it, brothers and sisters, when we now start to think about the story. You see, the Passover was going to represent 
the way in which they would be saved by his blood and his sacrificial death. And they would commemorate that by the killing of the lamb. But that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, brothers and sisters, was a feast of their response in gratitude to ensure that in their walk and their newness of life, that there would be no leaven, as 1 Corinthians 5 says, of sin and malice and wickedness, but instead they would partake in fellowship with God with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, this is the context, brothers and sisters, to the story of Mary's offering to show her response to her Lord's sacrifice. We're going to see, brothers and sisters, I believe, that Mary fully understood her, this in all her actions. It's remarkable because around her, the level of malice and wickedness was swelling and foaming and frothing and fermenting with rage and indignation as the scribes and Pharisees sought how they might count. Remarkable, isn't it? And she's going to be in the house of a leper. So now we're getting the detail, brothers. This is why I think we're told the house was Simon's. So here's the story. Just to prove my point, after two days was the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And Mark says, by the way, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Look at the comparison being made between what Mary knew and what these people knew. They sought, means to seek. Instead of looking, brothers and sisters, for leaven, they sought to take the Lord out. They were so busy seeking to kill Messiah, they forgot to check their own homes for leaven in their own hearts. And they were doing it, he says, by craft. That, you know, it means in the Greek, by guile, by subtlety, but by means of decoy, using a bait to entrap it. They were scheming their web of iniquity to try and take him by deceit, brothers and sisters. But they had to wait because there was a feast day. And if they took him on a feast day, there would be an uproar of the people. We don't want to cause a scene, but how do we catch him? And Judas from this incident is going to see an opportunity in advance of the Passover, something that they seize on with glee. The point, brothers and sisters, is that the atmosphere around this table would have been intense. The atmosphere around the Lord's arrival into Bethany, so close to Jerusalem, the Lord knowing his time was approaching, the keeping of the law required and the, and the low profile of which he was then moving in to try and keep away from Jerusalem until he was ready, as they tried to pursue him, would have hung in the ear, brothers and sisters over his head. And then in Bethany, in the house, says verse 3, of Simon the leper, another symbol so fitting of sin, he sits at me, a special supper made without living, as it were, specially prepared for him. And so Mark says in verse 3, there came while he was at me, a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. 
And in the midst of the turmoil outside, with the lemon fermenting and infecting many, as the scribes schemed around her, a woman rises with a pure heart to anoint her Lord. We know from John chapter 12 and verse 3, this was big. The disciple associated with the Lord's feet. And when we piece together the records together, it says that she comes from Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and John 12. She comes and she breaks the alabaster box. She pours it on his feet, on his head, and on his feet, and then wipes the, his feet with her hair. Why, brothers and sisters, does she do that? What was in her sacrifice and in her offering that the Lord saw that perhaps no one else fully appreciated? What's with the alabaster box and what's with the spike? Well, well, the alabaster box, brothers and sisters, is quite interesting. It's a white box with precious ingredient. Smith's Bible Dictionary says that it's an Arabic word, it's al-basron, which is a white stone. Possibly from Alabastron, which is the place in Egypt where it was to be found. And it's interesting because Smith's Bible Dictionary says that the ancients considered alabaster to be the best material in which to preserve their ointments. So the alabaster or the oriental alabaster of biblical times was almost translucent in color of carbonate of lime. And it was found on the floor of limestone caves um, and it was, it was um, made, obviously, of a percolation of water. We know them, those that have been caving know what limestone is. Okay? And so it was this, this alabaster, probably from Egypt, known to be the, one of the, the prized ways of keeping very special and precious ointment. And so it was carved into the shape of a vase and the ointment preserved inside. It was a very special box, something that she breaks. And of course, what was the ointment of spikenard? Well, the interesting word in the Greek is the ointment of the oil of pure nard. It's really what it means, the ointment of the oil of pure nard. The word for spikenard is two Greek words, nardos, which is the nard, and pistikos, which is being trustworthy or genuine. Okay, so it was pure, unadulterated, Nard, that's really what spike nard was. And it's called, translated spike nard, because it came from the head or the spike of an East Indian plant, which was grown in the Himalayas, which was extremely fragrant when it was distilled into an oil. And when it was done so, it was extremely costly and pungent perfume. And the scripture wants us to understand that it was realized because of its value. Each gospel, by the way, in, the, in their accounts, used a slightly different word to demonstrate its value. But really, and I should have put this on a screen, but uh, on a thing, but I haven't. Matthew 26, verse 7, talks about the weighty value of the item, the emphasis on the weight of the va weight to value ratio. Mark 14 talks about the fact that it's extremely expensive. So he focuses on the costliness of it. And John chapter 12 talks about its extreme value, which is the idea of the value of the product. So obviously it was highly prized, extremely expensive, and highly valued by all. So each of them used a slightly different word in their context, which is probably an entire talk of time. 
So what does she do? Well, she comes, brothers and sisters, in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, says that she, she had the alabaster box of ointment and spikenard, very precious. And it says she broke the box and poured it on his head. You see, it was a very deliberate act of Mary, wasn't it? She comes and she breaks the box. What's the point? I mean, we've given all this detail, brothers and sisters, aren't we? Why? Why not just say she anointed him with, with oil? It's like now. No, no, we, we're told that she breaks the box. Why? Well, once the box was broken, there was no going back, was there, for the ointment? She didn't just open the lid and put a small amount on. No, no, there's no way that Mary's doing that. She breaks the alabaster box and she pours the nard out its, in, his, in, in its entirety both on his head and subsequently on his feet. We know that because John chapter 12, verse 3 says that she doesn't just anoint his head, she also anoints the feet and that she wipes his feet with her head. I think the whole point of Mary's actions, brothers and sisters, is captured in John's gospel when he says she had come to, or it says it also in verse 8, to anoint his body. This, Mark chapter 14, verse 8, she had come to do an anointing. It was the Mary, says John chapter 11, which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with a head. And it's remarkable, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that Judas has an issue. Verse 4, there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, well, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. They were full of indignation. Why, why waste it on Christ as he's sitting at meat, you know? It could have been sold for a lot of money. 300 pence. Not that Judas cared for the poor, but he was a thief. We told that in John's gospel, and it was true. It was expensive. She had wasted it. She poured it on his head and on his feet. Why does she do this, what did this mean to her that she decides to anoint him so? Well, brothers and sisters, it's beautiful when we see it. You know, it's a good work, says the Lord. Jesus says, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work for me. That's the word for beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful because Christ saw instantly what she had done and why she had done it. And it absolutely touches him, brothers and sisters. In fact, more than touched him, I'm going to suggest that perhaps this act of Mary becomes an inspiration for the Lord. And it's memorialized forever because of what she did. So what did she do? Well, Christ tells her, why leave her alone? Why trouble ye her? Well, what are you doing? She has wrought a good work on me. The idea of a beautiful work. The idea of being highly valued and virtuous. She's wrought a good work of great value, of true moral beauty. Why, says the Lord? Well, we're told, well, she hath done. For the poor, sorry, ye have always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do good. But me have not always. She hath done what she 
could. You know, in the Greek, that means exactly what I said on the screen. She's done what she could, literally, what she had at hand, what she had at hand, she used. She grabbed whatever she could that could represent what she was doing for her Lord. And what was she doing, brothers and sisters? We told her to say that she has come aforehand to anoint my body to the beard. You see, Christ could see what Mary had understood about her Lord and about his impending sacrifice. All of the Lord's disciples, there was only one woman, who had understood all that Christ had said, all that he had inferred to on previous occasions about his impending sacrifice. She had understood that his death was coming and soon and that she might never have the opportunity to show her love to her Lord again. And thus, she had taken the opportunity to anoint his body for burial. Why? In acknowledgement of the sacrifice to show her appreciation and service and love for all that he meant to her. You know, hold your hand here, come in Mark chapter 16, and this is what Christ knew in, in advance. Because what was going to happen after his death and the role of the woman was that they would come and that they would anoint. It's one of their, one of their things of devotion, by caring for the body, by adding spices to show their love and their service to the Lord. See, it says in Mark 16 verse 1, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And so here they come afterwards. But Mary, here, brothers and sisters, says Christ, has anticipated his impending death and has chosen to show it now, whilst, his Lord, whilst her Lord was still alive, to demonstrate her love and care and appreciation for what her Lord's death would mean. So, brothers and sisters, how had Mary worked all this out? Whilst all the other disciples were completely in the dark, how did she understand about his impending death? Now, so brothers and sisters, was that this was Mary's superpower. A highly emotional, inner orientated, meditating, feeling self could work this out. You see, whilst Martha's outwardly giving service orientation allowed her to process in real time the external surroundings and to reach conclusion about her Lord's purpose whilst he was standing there. So Mary's introspective, emotionally reflective and meditating intellect had systematically worked everything out backwards. You see, reflected on all that had transpired in John chapter 11, the Lord's work, his purpose, his words, his message, and she deduced just what lay in front of her Lord in the very near future. What did she process, brothers and sisters? This is why I think John links these stories together. Why had the Lord let her brother die, only to raise him again four days later? What was with that? Why would this activity highlight and demonstrate the glory of God and show the sonship of the Lord, the thing that Christ had told them? Sure, the example was shown of his power in John chapter 11, but there are so many other ways that that could be done. So why that to demonstrate the glory of God and the sonship of the Messiah? 
Why had he put their family and Martha through this ordeal and then wept so bitterly himself when watching their grief in seeing the tomb and the stone over the, over the cave? Why was it so critically important for them to understand that he was both the resurrection and the life? You see, brothers and sisters, I believe Mary had sat and had reflected and pondered and meditated on all of this and reached the only logical conclusion and now all made sense of what he had been teaching on previous occasions, that he was going to die, that he was going to sacrifice himself in order to save them, that they might be raised, as he had outlined in John chapter 11. And seeing all this, brothers and sisters, she pieced it all together. She'd come with costly nard to show her care and appreciation and her love and her understanding of all her Lord was to her as both her Messiah and Saviour that would die and provide her life. Brothers and sisters, this was Mary's strength as her character and her personality. You see, Mary, by anointing his head and his feet with nothing, was telling him that she, sorry, that he was her spoken. Have you ever ever wondered and, and, and have you ever realized how it's strange about the level of detail that is put in the story about her actions? What did Mary understand of the spiker that she pours on his head? You know, it's remarkable, isn't it, brothers and sisters? When it says that the alabaster box was broken. And that the ointment of the nard was poured out. See, brothers and sisters, I think what we're being told is, is that she knew and that she understood that her Lord was her special, highly valued, extremely precious box of spikenard, whose love and whose death would be enacted that the world might be saved. Isn't it marvelous, brothers and sisters, to see what Mary saw in what she does? She grabs what she could to show him what she did. Isn't it wonderful, brothers and sisters, and it's little wonder why Christ sees that she hath wrought a beautiful, highly valued work. And it's of high significance, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that even as Mary saw her sacrifice of this woman as using whatever she could to take hold, to represent to her what the Lord's sacrifice would mean, that others would consider the sacrifice of Christ such a waste. Because they had no appreciation of the precious, the precious blood of Christ, who would be their, their lamb of their Passover, without spot and blemish, who would be sacrificed for them. 
And so I'm now with this brother and sister, perhaps we now understand what the Lord says in verse 9 of Mark chapter 14. Because the Lord turns to say to them all, he says, Verily, verily, I, uh, verily I sound to you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of her for a memorial of her. Wheresoever the gospel, the good news, will be preached to the whole world, whatever she's done will be spoken of as a memorial of you, of her, sorry. Now, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but, but whenever I hear us talking about the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, I never hear us referring to the passage of Mary's sacrifice. Do you? Perhaps we should. You know, I think we often go alongside the promises to Abraham and the promises to David. Perhaps we don't understand what Mary's sacrifice is all about. Should we? Perhaps we should. But maybe we might understand a little more what Christ meant now when it says that she broke the alabaster box and she poured it on him. What did she do in her actions, brothers and sisters? Well, isn't it remarkable when it says, to quote 1 Corinthians 11, she showed her Lord's death till he came. Now, I think the Lord draws inspiration, brothers and sisters, from Mary's sacrifice. He sees her actions and her perfume as representing himself. The alabaster box to be broken, a symbol of his body that would be broken for many. The oil of the spikenard to be poured out, a symbol of his blood shed for the remission of sins. And as he himself reflected on her sacrifice and her love, he thought about his own sacrifice and his own love. And decides perhaps to institute or reinforces his decision to enact a sacrificial meal, brothers and sisters, that would capture the same spirit and the same understanding that Mary had in the emblems of his own love. The bread and the wine in remembrance of his sacrifice. Christ had said, wherever the gospel was spoken of throughout the whole world, this will be spoken of as a memorial of her. And John, in recalling this moment that she poured on the precious ointment on his head and on his body, recalls the fact that the smell of the ointment, it says, filled the house with ointment. The whole house was filled with the odour of the ointment, says John. And that wherever the whole world where the gospel would be preached, her actions would be spoken of as a memorial of her. The gospel, brothers and sisters, was the good news of what, brothers and sisters, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal in her Lord. And Christ could see that his actions were actually reflected in hers. And thus he uses this incident and captures endeavours in his own sacrifice to institute a simple meal, supper, actually, of the bread and the wine to memorialise his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only that, brothers and sisters, perhaps we now might understand why the Lord on this occasion chose to wash his disciples' feet. Perhaps encouraged and motivated by Mary's own act of service 
as she washes his feet with fair hair. As the ointment runs down his feet. You know, certainly Mary's active devotion to her Lord had a profound effect on the Lord, as it should also have on us. So what might we learn from Mary's example, brothers and sisters, and young people? Well, I think there's many things that we could choose to learn from her example. Perhaps two things stood out for me of her wonderful example and her character. And the first of those is this. How much do we really love our Lord? To what extent will we go to show our Lord just what his sacrifice means to us? You see, for Mary, her Lord meant everything, didn't he? To Mary, her Lord's sacrifices demanded of her publicly to declare her appreciation by giving her all demands my life, my soul, and my all. You know, the Greek says that she hath done what she could. She, what she had at hand, she used. She gave everything she could because she felt compelled to give. A huge sacrifice of enormous value, which in her mind paled into insignificance compared to what she knew her Lord would do for her. And she wipes his feet with her hair. The supreme act of humility and devotion as his servant. And he is her Lord. You see, Mary's devotional offering, I believe, brothers and sisters, was done so to show her immense love for her Lord's sacrifice. And it begs of us the question, doesn't it? For each one of us, just how much do we really value our Lord's sacrifice? And what do we have at hand? to show our Lord how much we've appreciated his She anointed his head and his body. How do we do the same, brothers and sisters? Well, we need to, as First Corinthians says, eat and drink in remembrance of his sacrifice, but do so by discerning the Lord's body. Who was the Lord's body, brothers and sisters? And the answer is his ecclesia. And we need to consider Christ's body and commit to show our Lord just what his sacrifice has meant for us by devoting our lives to help those who Christ died for. That makes up his body. And it's only through this way that we can show the Lord's death till he come. To publicly proclaim and to declare is what that means in the Greek. To show the Lord's death till he comes. So Matthew 25, saying, in as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me, says the Lord. Let's resolve by using the inspiration of Mary's powerful example to examine ourselves and perhaps reconsider the value of our Lord's sacrifice, to commit to show our Lord's death till he come by devoting to each other our lives and appreciation for what his love has meant to us. And learn, as she did, to wash each other's feet in thankfulness and devotion to her. What's the other key lesson that I took out of this from her life, brothers and sisters? Well, I think the other thing is this, the benefit of meditation and reflection. Not just in divine things, but on what we're being taught. You see, the other key recommendation for the Lord 
concerning his feast was the question of self-reflection and self-examination. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, says the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if there was one person who epitomizes that, brothers and sisters, who had spent the time in self-reflection, understanding her own weakness, to consider her actions and what she learned. Perhaps it was me. Who had taken the time to reflect and consider all that her Lord had done for her and for her family. She meditated on why the Lord had done what he'd done, what he had said and why he had said it. She pieced it all together. And Mary's intracentric view, whilst had been a problem in John 11 and a hindrance to her, as she'd become lost in her emotional world, now becomes a powerful tool as she calls to mind all the events that she'd stored up in her heart. And this ability, this ability in her to rerun the events, the messages her Lord taught, enabled her to see and have perspective into the future in a way that none of the Lord's disciples could understand. See, Mary had a wonderful ability to self-reflect, to take time to consider her own reactions, to think about what she had done for her Lord, what she had done to her sister, to understand all that her Lord was trying to teach her. And as such, brothers and sisters, she was able to see with discernment and understanding and spiritual insight in a way that no other could of her Lord's impending sacrifice. Let's perhaps endeavor to take some time to self-reflect, to consider the hand of God in our own lives, to assess what God is and has been trying to teach us. And not just self-reflect, but armed with that understanding and insight to respond and to act in gratitude for all that he has and will accomplish on our behalf. So, brothers and sisters, I hope perhaps you've been a little inspired by this wonderful examples of faith, these beautiful women who have able to who are able to assist us as we endeavor to walk together in love. Perhaps now we can appreciate perhaps a little bit more why it seems that Jesus loved them. He loves us. You see, this was a beautiful family in every sense of the word. A family whose members had incredible, wonderful character traits, but also had, well, they had obvious flaws. Brothers and sisters, the flaws the Lord helped to grow and to use to, to increase their faith. And who each responded to show their love to the Lord, either through passionate service or emotional dedication. You see, I pray, as they have done for me, that these beautiful examples help us to better understand each other and motivate each other to give as, to we've, been, as we've been given, to learn and to see our God working in each of us, both in our strengths and in our weaknesses, in our own ecclesial family, so that he might, through us, bring about his purpose. Because God is at work in us to do and to will his good pleasure. To understand, brothers and sisters, we each have weaknesses. But to reflect how these flaws can be hallmarks of strength. And we pray that we might play to each other's strengths, that we might all grow together in God's grace. Until our Lord comes, the Son of God, 
our resurrection and our life to usher in that beautiful day when the resurrection will occur and the kingdom we've prayed for has come. Thank you.